let's focus on the Word of God. This is in Micah chapter 3. Micah is castigating the nation for their words that sound good, but their life and lifestyle is far from God. Micah says, And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers, the prophets, shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken." For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away 
and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we're reminded in your word that I have just read that you are concerned about the poor, the lame, injustice, selfishness, greed, and corruption. As we read of what you did with ancient Israel, we look at our own nation and ourselves and ask that you would work in us a heart of compassion for justice and righteousness for the poor, for the oppressed, for the widow, for the childless. We ask your blessing and strength on us. We pray for Philip as he preaches your word, Lord. Give him strength and clarity. May we have hearts to listen and to obey. And we pray in your name. Amen. Thanks, brother. So this is the third message in a series of six in the book of Micah. And you just heard chapter 3, 1 through 4, 8. But before we get here, I want to back up a little bit and talk about the subject of the book and the questions I've proposed would be good for you to think through as you read or listen to the book of Micah in about 15 minutes. We read it here a couple weeks ago, but 15 minutes. So that's a run or a walk or a drive to work or as you're going to bed, you can listen to the entire book of Micah to get what's going on. And I hope you will uh, because I think it's good in a short book like this to be able to see the book as a whole to kind of hear what is God saying to me and to my culture. So Micah is about how God responds to unjust Israelite leaders. That's the subject in every message. Maybe you'll get a little bored of it, but every message is going to come back to this thing. How does God respond? And so these are the questions. I'm going to run through the answers we gave last week, but remember last week is about God's judgment, his consequences for their counterfeit comforts. He said, you're going into exile, primarily speaking in northern Israel and some towns in the south, because you're unjust and you want a replacement for God. Counterfeit comforts. And so, how does Micah exalt God and point to the Messiah in those first two chapters of the book? He comes out of his temple and melts mountains. That's a big thing. He's powerful. And he assembles the remnant for deliverance. And that kind of ties in how is God going to solve Micah's and the Israelite problems and ours? The answer there is himself. Himself. And we saw two verses of that. And today we're going to see quite a bit more of how God solves their problems. What kind of sin, really, what kind of injustice is Micah calling out? Well, counterfeit comforts in the form of pleasures, idolatry, and really oppression of fellow Israelites, their own people. That's what he calls out in the first two chapters. Finally, how does leadership, and your leadership in particular, affect people? Well, I can't answer for you. (laughs) Some of you maybe that are my closer friends. But we see in the book of Micah already that leadership has a tremendous effect on people. What it does is sets a course for nation and those under their authority in morality, and it leads people to God or away from God. 
And we're going to see more of that in the book of Micah throughout. A reminder for you, there are three key divisions in Micah. Chapter 1, verse 2, where he says, Listen, people of Israel, the Shema, hear, O Israel. Then today we're going to pick up the second division, half of it. 3.1 starts with, hear, O Israel. And then chapter 6 is the third division. So we'll have two sermons here on this middle division of the book of Micah. All right, so today then, in this middle division, today we're going to talk about God's response to injustice in two ways. Proof of that injustice and really a promise of peace and justice for all the earth. And that's what this section of Micah is about. There are times when you and I must be told of how serious a situation is despite the pain of that seriousness. We have to have proof, like a cancer patient, for the first time facing the diagnosis of their disease. They need facts. They need the honest, nitty-gritty truth about what's going on. They need proof. Or think about maybe a less serious one in some senses, but family problems. Someone in your family has a real struggle, whether sinful or not, and they're you need to know why. You need to know what's going on. You need the truth to come out. You need proof of what's going on. I think that's where God starts here, and he kind of nails down the, the terrible facts about the situation in Israel. We need proof in times like that. But what do we need in addition to proof? Just the hard facts? No, we need great promises, hope in those times. We need great hope. And the greater the injustice or the greater the struggle, the greater the hope we need. And in Micah today, in chapter 4, you're going to see a great hope that you've already heard about. And I have an illustration here. It's rare for CBC. So we're going to watch a short clip here of a movie that I think illustrates perfectly this idea that in the darkest of times, God's light shines the brightest. Large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have, have fallen or may fall into the, the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of the Nazi rule. We shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France, we shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with, with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender! And if, which I, I do not for a moment believe, this island or large part of it were, were, were subjugated and starving, then our empire we on the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world 
with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. So I love World War II history, but I think this is so uncannily good to represent our passage. First, just as in World War II, when they could no longer hide, they could no longer placate Hitler, the proof was there, millions of people would lose their lives. And that was a hard reality to face. Injustice in the Nazi regime was there. In our passage today, in the first half of it, injustice had reared its head to the point where God could no longer ignore the facts. Proof was there. Israel, especially its leaders, especially its religious leaders, were beyond what God would tolerate. And the proof he's going to lay out for you, as you've already heard in chapter 3. They perverted justice. They called evil good and good evil. And he condemned the civil, political, and religious leaders. They're rotten. Secondly, justice in the face of great oppression and injustice. This movie is called The Darkest Hour of Nazism. Churchill stood up and promised something that was needed for his country. In their darkest hour, he promised great hope. Likewise, in Israel's, both northern and southern Israel's darkest hour, here comes God's promise shining like a beacon of hope for them. And it was a great promise. In the face of great injustice, God's mercy and grace was greater. He promised restoration for his people. He promised to fix injustice. And he promised a returning king. And actually, the rest of Micah 4 is about that king. We'll get there another day. And that's what we need today. I, I really believe that this book is so relevant for our culture, for us today, because we need that. In the face of an unjust society, we must have a greater hope than human solutions to the problems that face us. Let's go now. If you have your Bibles open, you can look at chapter 3. We're going to be working through that. We're going to talk about the proof of unjust leadership first. I'm going to mention some verses there, and we can start at verse 1. Shouldn't you know justice? Sarcasm from the mouth of the Lord. Basically saying, you should know because of all the things I've done for you and all the things I've called you to do and challenged you on what justice is. You should know it, but you don't. And he begins this chapter more specifically with the heads, the leadership. See, at the ground floor, chapter 1, we're kind of general. Here we are climbing up the ladder and really, we're going to see the pinnacle of the injustice of the Israelite society here in their leadership. And he says here, if you really want to know God personally, as in that relationship with him, you must understand what? Justice. You must understand justice. It's that important. If you look at Psalm 89, 14, in my study and conversation with some of the people this week, it really hit me, this verse in particular. Because it elevates justice to the level of things we don't normally think that justice is as important as. Look at this. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. It's parallel to righteousness. Steadfast love and faithfulness, that's hesed or covenant love, and faithfulness go before you. Among the three things that we Christians usually like to think of as primary here, there's a fourth, justice. That struck me. And it's all over there. And I hope you'll think about it this week. 
What does God say about justice? I'm going to say a few more things, but I've been thinking about it a lot, and it has changed my perspective, and I pray that one of the things in Micah that you'll do is really examine what justice is. Psalm 97, if you're taking notes, is another one that makes the same connection between God's faithfulness and justice. Many other places, Psalm 72, 1 through 4, there's another one. And in that one, actually, the king cries out for justice. It's not negative. It's a positive attribute that people who love the Lord have. And it's in that psalm, it's the king and the peasant. Everyone in between needs justice. So it's not necessarily just a negative thing. And I'm going to put up here a chart at the request of someone here um, that I think helps us. And I'm going to leave it up there. As we go through, as we walk through in chapter 3, the injustice of the Israelite leadership, all of them, political, social, religious, so that you can kind of think through those things as it relates to our text. So the first proof that they're unjust is they don't actually know God. That's a big one, obviously. But the second one in our text, so we're moving on to three, chapter, chapter 3, verses 2 through 4 and 9, is that they use people as a means to an end. Their leadership is more interested in what they get out of people than serving those people. And actually, this is a pretty grotesque scene here. At the beginning of Micah 3, it's like Silence of the Lambs. You know what that is? There's, they're not actually cannibals, but it is like they are because they eat their own people. Crazy, huh? I, I think in our own lives that seems far away, but let me illustrate for you in my life with my brother, who's younger, And at that time was much weaker than me, a a similar situation, I think, that's applicable to our lives. You know, I love paintball, and paintball was all the rage when I was about 16 or 17. So I went out and bought my own gun. I was working at Arby's. Uh, Some of you know that about me. I worked there a long time. But I bought my own gun, and I wanted to test it out. And my parents know this story because they were involved in it. So I was like, I manipulated my brother. You know, he's younger. At that point, he was much not as, not as wise in the worldly way. So I'm like, I'm going to take this gun and I'm gonna, I want to go outside. And we, we lived on an acreage. I'm like, I want you to run across the acreage while I shoot you with his gun. <laughs> now, it was worse than that because in my mind, I'm thinking, hi, I, I got him. He agreed. I promised he could use it next, of course. You know, As soon as he turned around and started running, I started shooting. And he didn't get it like three feet away. I shot him like four times right in his buns. And, and you know what happened? He, he ran after me. He was enraged. And he grabbed the gun and threw it down. I ran into the house. I think I'm telling this right, Mom and Dad. And you know what he did? I I locked the door, and he fumed outside. And then my parents got involved. But you know what? I had authority. I had power, physical. You know, I was wiser. And I used it to do what? To take advantage of my brother. And he remembers it well to this day. Thankfully, he's forgiven me. But I'm I'm sure in our lives, we we do similar things. They're unjust. It's an abuse of the situation God has us in. So that's the second thing. These people prove they're unjust because they take advantage of others and use them as a means to an end. Thirdly, in this passage, religious leaders, contrary to Micah, contrary to the Lord Almighty, prophesy and do their work only for money. They, bri- they take bribes. In other words, they're like that Hindu priest or others who you give them enough money, you get a really good report. Oh man, God's going to bless me. Sadly, that's what they're doing. They're no different than the nations around them. If you read through that, you'll see 5 through 8, 11, unjust religious leaders are the core of God's issue. See, it's one thing to be wicked if you're not speaking for God. That is sinful, of 
course, but it's at another level, I believe, in the book of Micah especially, in Isaiah, if you claim to speak for God and you speak falsehood. And worse, you do it for money, primarily, as your only motive. Seems like that's what's going on. And it wasn't just in their day. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 23. I'm going to read it to you, but this is what it says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So, anything changed from Micah's day in human hearts? No, seems. And it's not just their days. I'm going to read to you a sad story. Some of you already may know parts of it, but about Mark Driscoll. Um, pretty famous religious leader in the United States over the past few years in the emergent church movement. There's a podcast called Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I think you can learn from that like we can learn from the book of Micah if you go read that. This is his story, or part of it, and the church's. From its founding, the church, in 1996 until March of 2014, Mars Hill grew to 14,000 members in five states and 15 different locations. Yet at the same time, the chorus of public criticism and formal complaints from Mars Hill staff members and congregants grew, alleging a pattern of abusive behavior by Mark Driscoll. Mars Hill Church's Board of Advisors and Accountability initiated an investigation, and what they found was disturbing. Verbal abuse and domineering attitude, spending of church funds to boost sales of one book to get on a New York Times bestsellers list, another book he wrote was almost completely plagiarized, and he, in addition, created false identities in chat rooms to attack church members who he thought were not living up to the standard. And you know what? It's sadder because he now currently pastors a church in Arizona. You can look at his website. So it's not just back in Micah's day. It is all over. In our day as well, in the United States, and let's learn from them. Here is a church and as believers to not follow that pattern. So these religious leaders in Micah's day and in ours prove they're unjust by trying to take advantage of their people and lift themselves up. I noted this one late yesterday. <laughs> Verse 11, they preach a false gospel. A false gospel of hereditary salvation. In other words, we're Israelites, we're saved. Wrong, that's false. It's, it's not true. There are no children in the kingdom of God by birth only, physical birth, right? So they're preaching a false gospel. Finally, they prove that they're unjust because God's judgment comes on them. And here now we get to the crux of the proof. It's so bad that the very capital, the city God loves, has been ruled over for hundreds of years by his king is going to be destroyed. If you look at it there in verse 12, Zion, Jerusalem itself, was going to be taken away into exile. And that meant everyone. If that happens, there's nothing left. There's no government, no king, no rulers, no leaders, no priests, no sacrifice. It's all gone. And so, if you're hearing this for the first time in the book of Micah here, or if you imagine yourself in an Israelite's position in Judah, this is terrible news. There's a lot of questions going through your mind. Why aren't we God's people? How is he going to accomplish what he wants to do through us? I thought we were supposed to be special. 
And here we are in a terrible, dark situation in our lives. What's going to happen? Chapter 4 answers that, but before I get there, I want to take a note to speak some, about something here I think is really important, and that's God identifies with the poor and oppressed. And I love Tim Keller's way of illustrating this. He says, how do you introduce yourself? Okay, and you can think through this too. How do you, how do I introduce myself? We talk about family, right? We talk about our wives or spouses or maybe our interests, maybe what we do for work. For some of us, I hope that we're followers of Jesus Christ. The way we introduce ourselves is telling people what's important to us, right? The things we do, the things that are closest to our heart. In a likewise manner, then, how does God introduce himself? I've got some things here. I don't have scripture references. They're there. We can talk later. But listen to the ways that I found in scripture God introduces himself. A father of the fatherless and the orphan. A husband of the widow. Champion of the downtrodden. The releaser of those in bondage to Satan, the world, and their own sinful desires. The avenger of the martyr and vindicator of the falsely accused. And what's more, Christmas message here, what's more, how does he introduce himself to the world as a helpless, oppressed, poor baby? God's introduction to the world was in helplessness. He identifies with these kinds of people. And reality is we're all poor and needy. No matter how strong we think we are, how much money we have, it can change in an instant. God is sovereign. And not only that, but spiritually, we are like that apart from Christ. And sometimes, too, we find ourselves in Christ spiritually oppressed by our own decisions or the world. We're all needy. We're all blind apart from Christ. We're enslaved to sin and unrighteousness, helpless enemies of God. Titus 3.3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And that's the message for our culture. That's the proof that people need to hear. We're all weak. We're all oppressed spiritually. We are all in need of a God that can rescue. And it's bad. I think for us, then, in, in the United States particularly, we must recognize the bankruptcy of our culture spiritually. We are, I think there's proof in our society that we're worse than Micah's day. Let that sit for a second. We are worse, at least quantitative, or, uh, yeah, quantitatively, if not qualitative. We do the same things to more people, at the very least. It's abundant. You, you read any news site. You drive down the road. It's in your cars. It's in your workplaces, in your houses, in your schools, in your offices. I think there are three things I want to point out, probably already heard them, but just for a reminder that are extremely wicked and unjust in our culture. Number one, the attack on God's design for men and women reaches to every level of society. Transgenderism and its destructive effects on minors are rampant. 1.4% of people 13 to 17 years old identify as the opposite sex. In other words, they think they're a man when they're a woman and vice versa. And Medicare pays for those transitions. They support it wholeheartedly. And churches, 
many false churches, but supported as well. And, and there are other things less severe, but I heard a story yesterday from a friend at CBC uh, about a nephew who is in public school in Minnesota. It's not just in public school, but this is that story, who was never called upon being a boy in the class by the woman teacher. And so after hearing this a couple of times, the parents were like, okay, I got to see what's going on. And she went to his school and she sat through a whole class where not a single man, single boy was called on in class. And she finally had to call attention to the teacher that, hey, there are boys here who want to answer too. I just wonder how often that happens. How often is that happening and sending a unju- completely wrong message from our culture about God's design? So that's one. Number two, I think we are a murderous and violent society. Let's be honest. In our schools, you know, you talk to some of the kids who go to school here, it's, it's violent every day at school. There's at least a fight every day. And I'll tell you statistics that back that up. Parades get wrecked by violence and murder. Churches even, it's in them fights and shootings. And let alone the clinics where last year, to the cheering of the authorities of our country, one million babies were murdered. One million babies last year in the United States were aborted. We're unjust. And you can see some of that in the news even this week. Tyree Nichols beat to death, died of his injuries by five officers. A statement, an article I read about Akron school, public schools, this is just brief to put in context. 3,000 fights in one year in one school district. 3,000 fights. Man, Lord help us, it's dark. And finally, debt. Debt. Maybe not thinking this way, but we're slaves to debt. Nationally and personally, we all are. Here's some statistics. The average household credit card debt is about 5,300. Consumer debt is 15 trillion almost. And national debt, which you've heard about probably recently, 31 and a half trillion dollars. That's like a made up number kind of for us. Each of us, 94,000, okay? Like trillion is so silly, you can't really conceptualize it. You've probably read about that, but $94,000 each American. That's kids, I believe, owes. We're slaves to debt. Yeah, that's right. We, like Micah's people, have clear access to the knowledge of God through freedom to read the Bible and worship wherever we want, however we want, but our country is enslaved to sin and produce, and it perverts justice. Dark and difficult days are not coming. They're here. We, we have to recognize that as believers, and we have to hear that we're the same as Micah's day and what God responds to that situation. God came through for them with a promise, like Churchill. When the days were darkest, he made a promise, he made a speech to fight on forever. God does the same thing in Micah, and he does it for us in your lives as well. No matter how dark the days are, his promises will shine greater. When sin runs rampant and injustice is unstoppable, God rises up, and his mercy is greater. And his grace is sufficient. I want to read 3.12 through 4.2 again for you here so that we can just have this fresh in our minds. ESV, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house of wooded height. Now here's something I think most translations miss. 
There's a but clearly in the Hebrew. There's a clear division. But it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills. And people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. That's a promise. And it just continues throughout chapter 4 and 5. The promise of God. A promise of justice, but more a promise of peace and restoration. And I think you can see that. Let me point out some of the ways that happens exegetically here in the text. In verses, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, and kind of throughout, but the temple returns. So it's destroyed, but immediately, God says in chapter 4, it's going to be rebuilt. That's weird. You rebuild it and tear it up. That should kind of hit us and be like, okay, this is important for us. And not only that, I want to mention that this idea of worship as the reason for the existence of Israel is crucial. That was why God made them who they were and put them where they were. And so the temple and worship returns. And it's really interesting, too, that Isaiah chapter 2 is an exact copy, word for word, of this prophecy of Micah. That means it's important. (laughs) If it's that big of a section, I think it's all the way through verse 8 here. Uh, Micah chapter 2, you can compare them. They're exact copies. In other words, God is saying, I want you to pay attention to this. Through two different people, the same exact wording, uncanny. The temple returns, and there's worship returning. The law returns, and it's taught rightly. It's not a false gospel. It's a true gospel. It comes back in verse 2 and throughout. So those are two things. The third one is the people return, and they're good people. (laughs) They're not these wicked leaders. They're obedient and they love the Lord, and they seek peace. And finally, and this is the title of my message, as my friend Jason said, caught me out there. I hope you caught it. The King Returns, the return of the king, a la Lord of the Rings, right? Those movies are all about the king coming back. They're hobbits and fun things, but they're driving toward the king coming back and restoring peace and justice and defeating the orcs and all the wickedness that's going there. That is what's going on here. The tower of the flock here, just a note, I think represents the shepherd. It is the one who guards and protects the flock. So this is talking about a leader. And this leader enforces peace and prosperity. He brings prosperity. And his people are the lame, the afflicted, and the cast off. And don't miss this. This is forever. It's not temporary. It's forever. He will reign forever. So here in Micah, we have an awesome promise of what God is going to do to bring back peace to the land. And really, theologically, that's what it is. Peace on earth and the worship of Him, the Lord Jesus, is the goal of justice. It drives towards that in all its facets. And it's God's design for Israel to make worshipers through their justice, through their imitation of him. Here are three short passages, and there are tons of them. Maybe you'll read through the Exodus differently or think about the prophets differently. This is what they say. In Joshua 2.11, Rahab worships God, gets on his side because of what God did in Egypt. For the Lord your God, she says, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. 
1 Kings 8, 41 through 43, when Solomon dedicates the temple and prays, this is what he says. When a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a faraway country for your name's sake, answer their prayers, summarizing quite a bit there, in order that, so why, all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you. Mark eleven seventeen in the words of Jesus, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of thieves and robbers. So this is the biblical witness that why does God want justice to bring worship to himself? And this is where Israel's failing, isn't it? People don't actually want to come and worship God. They run the other way. Remember in chapter one, I think it was, or two in that section, the people steal foreigners' coats. They're walking along and they're just coming to maybe even pray at the temple and they steal their money. They steal their coats. And the religious leaders don't give you, they won't pray for you if you don't give them money. Who, who wants to be there? I wouldn't want to be there. Who would go to a church like that? You come in and instead of like worshiping, they take your stuff and kick you out. <laughs> I mean, who wants, right? That's the problem. Do you see it? Do you see it here? They have profaned God's name because they're not just. They've driven away people instead of brought worshipers to him. And that's what he wants. So for us, is Christ supreme in your house and in your life? So that when people can look at you and they look at our church as well in our community, do they see justice and want to worship? This is a dark hour in our country. Maybe the darkest hour yet. And it's need, our country's need and our need for Christ is great. The greatest it has been. Because his promises are greater than any kind of human justice that we could bring. He promises to fix injustice. And people need to hear that. They must hear Micah's words here of a restoration of peace on earth through justice. And we too present him as the only one. God and his son, the King Jesus Christ, as the one who can bring justice and peace to men, women, children, and their communities and societies. Um, there's a great book that kind of goes through how God is doing this. I just want to recommend it briefly, Insanity of God. I've talked about it before, and it just goes through how God is working in the world outside of the United States, and I so much want that same kind of faith and justice in my own life as it is there in those stories. So pick that up and read it. But I'll just say this. The book makes it very clear. We can't fight injustice with human means. It's not going to work. If that's all we have is food, it's not going to work. It will never work that way. So two kind of, and I'll say this, only faith in Jesus Christ can bring true justice because he took the punishment for our sins on himself and delivered justice. Romans 3, as it was up there. But two simple, and as I close, I think very practical applications that I see from this second half of promises and the proof, proof and promises, right? First, we need to know the injustice of our society and not just know it as an anecdotal thing, but know it either experientially walking into those places or reading about it so that we actually understand what's happening. So we enter into some of that at least and can feel it and can know it and can tell other people about it and can argue about it in the right way, full of grace and truth, right? As Jesus did. And, you know, I think a simple way to do this is just 
listen to people when they talk to you about these things and be able to repeat back to them accurately what they're actually upset about. Like Lenny and I were saying, have a conversation. Listen, there's a debate method uh, called the Rogarian. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, method. But step two of that, after you present your argument and then you're given some time to listen to the others, what do you have to do? You have to tell them what their argument is to their satisfaction. It proves you understand what's going on. I think that is kind of what God has done. He's proved, hey, you're taking bribes as religious leaders, right? For us, we need to actually understand the depth of injustice in our culture. Not some anecdotal quip, but the reality so that we can rightly present Christ to other people and let our light shine, if you will, brightly in a dark situation. Second, I think this is more to the point. I was talking to the youth about this the other day, and I got a little overboard. I got up in their face and was like, tell me, tell me, tell me. Because I was like, if someone comes to you and says, what, you, what the Bible says is false, it's okay for a man to want to be a woman. How are you going to respond? I challenged them with that. What verse are you going to bring up? How will you make a good defense of your faith? What promise, and this is where I want to land here, what promise of God is greater than that fake comfort? Where does God's light shine brightly in that or in whatever situation it is that you find yourself defending your faith? We need to practice it and know the scriptures, the promises. And one of the ones that I think in my own life has been really helpful is just some difficulties. I memorized Philippians 4.19 and every time, man, even walking up today, I'm like, okay, Lord, you provide all I need in Christ Jesus according to your glorious riches because that's the kind of God you are. And that's what Micah says. This is the kind of God who meets the highest level of injustice with the greatest amount of promise for the future. It's better than what the world has to offer. And so, you know, I think we ought to have those promises ready to go. One example, and then I'll review and close. There's a guy here at church I know very well, have for years, who this actually happened to him with a group of friends. And there was someone in that group that was considering becoming a woman, at least they thought they would, in this culture, and kind of introduce that to the friend group. And after much prayer, this person said, you know what, I think I need to tell the truth. And he did. And that person did not listen, but it has been a continuous witness in other friends of that group for the gospel for years now. We can shine our light brightly in our culture by giving the promises of God in a gracious, kind way. I'm sure you all have situations like that in your own lives where you know of people suffering or even committing great injustices. We need to know the promises of God. We need to know the real issues so that we can respond to them just like God did for these people. He, he had the proof of their injustice right up front. And he had the promise that would fix it all in the person of the king. So we walked through Micah 3, 1 through 4, 8. We saw that God proves their injustice and promises to fix it and give peace. Will you let the promise of Christ shine bright in our darkest hour? I'll just pray that we do that today. Lord, may your spirit accomplish all that you want through us in a dark hour in our culture. And may your justice and peace shine brightly through your promises, through us treasuring you, Father, and your Son, the Lord Jesus, above all other things, just like men of old, like Moses, who for 40 years was in the wilderness and did not return to Egypt. May we be the same way. 
like our Lord Jesus, who faced with the suffering that we talked about today at the cross, persevered and counted on your promises. May we each be like that this week and for the rest of our lives. I pray that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.